welcome to a grad chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's grad chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs as well as CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify and CFRC podcast. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I would like to introduce you to Heather Morrison, who is doing a PhD in education under the supervision of Dr. Richard Reeve. Welcome to Grad Chat, Heather. Thank you. And it's very nice to be here. It's, you know, it's uh, winter is here. Finally, we got some snow last week. Well, it was a week, a week ago now. And who knows? That might that might be it. <laughs> so, I, well, I hope not. I love snow. <laughs> I'm still getting used to it, I guess. <laughs> I was kind of enjoying working on the golf course and, and not having to worry about slush and stuff. But anyway, that's the way things go. So before we get onto your research, can you give us some background of your journey that ultimately brought you to continue your education? Where are you from? All those sorts of wonderful things for us to find out. I'm originally from PEI. Excellent. And I'm I think re- you're probably my first one from PEI that ooh, I know of ooh, anyway. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I moved to Kingston in 2023. I think of life like chapters in a book and so... That was probably the second chapter. No, let's go with the third. The third chapter <laughs> of my life. So teenagehood, young adulthood, and then I moved here when I was 35. And I, right. I moved without a job because I wanted to live in this city. I love this city. I fell right. in love with it, visiting it over the years. And when I arrived, I rented a little house on Clergy Street. Okay. Not far. Not far. Across the street was a building. A new building was being built, going up, and... I kept looking at it and thinking, I wonder what that's going to be. And the other thought I was having persistently was, I need a job and I want to work in a women's shelter. Lo and behold, it turned out to be Kingston's new women's shelter. So I worked there for five years. Fantastic. Frontline counseling. Also, uh, in the second chapter of my life, I was a programmer, a computer programmer and tech support person. So I did that work in the shelter. I did frontline counseling and I did a small workshop at 1.2 on transitional housing. Wow. So that was fun. That's a a lot of different things there from (laughs) IT to counseling and all very good, of course. Lots of different things. All very applied. Yeah, Mm -hmm. hands-on, all with the goal of improving the lives of women and children in everything that I worked in. I was Initially, I worked as an ECE, early childhood educator. I was the executive director of a women's equality-seeking organization back in PEI. And had a little side trip into IT, but when... When I really had some skills and I was ready to do something different, I wanted to take that back to the social service right, world. Right. So I was really lucky to land this position at, at Kingston Interval House. After being there, you know, five years, I was ready for a change and I saw an advertisement with the Sexual Assault Center at Kingston. They were starting a young women's program and their definition at that time was girls age 12 to 18. Right. So essentially those in the school system who were coming uh, into contact with the law 
testifying as uh, survivors in sexual assault cases. Not easy. And no, and very brave, very, very yes. brave young women. Court ended up being a big part of the counseling support that I did because of their age. If you're under 16, you still don't have the right to decide if charges will be laid in your behalf. And oh, when you're okay. over 16, you do have a choice. And so a lot of the cases I worked on, there was an intersection between hospital, school, lots of times Children's Aid Society and uh, the criminal justice system. That's brilliant. But then what made you go from doing that to coming back and doing a PhD? <laughs> so I did that for a decade and covered a large catchment area, mm -hmm. 4,200 kilometers, 300,000 people. Wow. So both counties, this one, Frontenac all the way up to Northbrook, Caledar, back down to Napanee and over to Kingston. And I was in the schools all the time. Okay. I'd really say my primary identification would be as a life coach yes. or a teacher, yes. but not uh, the type of person who teaches reading, right? but yes. teaches life skills. Which is just as important. Uh, I, you, you walk around, there's a lot of kids that don't have those life skills. It's true. Yeah, it's for whatever true. reason. For lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. There's certain things that the education system should be doing and then others that they can do part, part of it, but it shouldn't be their sole responsibility. That's right. And so much of learning, and we'll talk about this mm -hmm. later, happens in what we call the public sphere. Yes. And I'll talk a little bit about the public sphere when I start to talk about my research. Mm -hmm. So an observation I had when I was working with the girls, I had about 300 clients over that decade, was that I wanted to take them places in society, in town, on field trips where they could see women's empowerment in right, play. Right, right, yes. So we would go every year to take back the night. And there right. was, at that time, a journal that Queen's Gender Studies, I guess it was Women's Studies then, was producing. So my girl, my girls. <laughs> That's were, nice though. They you were young women. They, yes. I, I was very attached. And uh, I think I did some work and research on attachment and learning in my master's degree here at Queen's. Right. So I think that's a really important part of any learning or healing process, which is they're essentially built on the same set of principles right. and skill development. But the girl, my girls wrote for this journal every year and submitted Fantastic. poetry and art, and they were really excited to be part of the university. That must be quite eye-opening, not only for them, but for you as well, reading some of the things that they're writing, but for them, an opportunity for them to express what's going on. Absolutely. And then to come to Stauffer for a reception and watch this journal be launched and to see their words in writing at the at Queens, at this institution, yep. living in, in Kingston and for many years not being part of the Queens environment, I can tell you that there's a big glass wall all the way around. Thinking you can't get in. That's right. Yeah. And particularly, like a majority of the kids I worked with were living with multiple aces in their lives, which is uh, adverse early childhood experiences. Right. So poverty was... So uh, they wouldn't often get an opportunity to come to an institution like this, which I'm glad to say things are changing on that front where we're giving more opportunities for people from all backgrounds, regardless of whether they've got the money or not, to be able to come. 
I think we have a long way to go. Yeah, we do, but it's, but it's a start. We have to start somewhere, and yes. certainly in my time as on the board of directors of the Children's Aid Society here in Kingston and chairing that organization, I was involved at the time when both St. Lawrence College and Queen's started to provide free tuition for kids who had been wards or in permanent care right. of the society. Right. So that certainly helped to break that glass ceiling of first-generational education or higher education. Higher, yeah. It's like I said, it's a start, isn't it? But certainly having someone like you also supporting them along the way for their own personal growth, that must have been quite rewarding for you. It was. Do you want me to tell you Please why, do. what made me think about doing this? Yes. <laughs> okay, I'll just keep talking. Yeah, go so for it. let's go back. I don't think that um, any of us become who we are without a lot of influence from our families. Yes. And growing up in PEI family was very important. My mother was orphaned by the time she was six due to domestic violence and the thing that she always attributed to having saved her life was she was really smart right she was a strategic thinker but she had lots of intelligence and she was able to get a good education in in a traditional field in the 50s which was nursing on the other side of my family my father's father came back from world war ii quite injured and right. He contributed some other things and in the end ended up with a doctorate, honorary doctorate from UPEI. But in the time my father was growing up, his mother was the primary financial Is that right? Financial support and caregiver in the family. And of her eight children, seven have post have degrees or post um, postgraduate degrees. Wow. And they lived on potatoes right <laughs> and she was insistent that there would be education so I come from this background that education is everything it's, yeah, it's, it's important it's silver, silver bullet mm-hmm. right to changing the trajectory of people's lives yeah my mother went on to open the first daycare center in PEI and so I grew up from age three until I was 30 we ran a daycare center sometimes as many as 60 children wow and I first started teaching kids when I was 10 I would take the wild thing kids the kids who right. couldn't sit down and we have all kinds of labels for them now neurodiverse <laughs> I prefer wild things let's go out and have some fun That's, they don't want to sit down no and teach them to read when they yeah. were five and right. it was really easy to do and I could never understand what was wrong with all the adults in the world but anyway there you go sometimes that peer-to-peer relationship exactly we know that helps a lot so bundling all those things up when I was working at the sexual assault center with the young women I really wanted to take them to social justice school right and there wasn't a location like oh let's go over here and learn about social justice and women's rights so I developed lots of training material and did group work with them and took them to places in the city that offered opportunities in the meantime my father actually driving back from Florida discovered Women's Rights Museum which is in Seneca Falls oh okay Seneca Falls is three hours south of Kingston as the crow flies which is not far not at all and it's a, a national park actually that the US government funds and maintains and it teaches people the history of women's rights in the United States. That's brilliant. It's lovely. I've been there many times. It's free. <laughs> like, Even better. That's great. That's public pedagogy, yes. which I'll talk more about later. So I guess 
like a lot of things come together. I'm not 24. I'm bringing a lot of life experience into my time here at Queens. I am 56. As near as I can tell from all the biohackers, I could easily live to be 100. So I'm only halfway through. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love it. That's great. That's good. It's fun. I have some more work to do yet. Which is great because you clearly want to help people. And I've always, 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 actually, I was a kid who flunked out of grade 10 and grade 12. And I was academically dismissed from university in the beginning. And I just, I was somebody really. You weren't who, ready for it. Not everyone's ready to do education at certain points in time. I wasn't. And I know lots of things now about what was happening in my own life then that were precluding me from being academically successful. And some of those skills are quite teachable. And so when the pandemic came and I wasn't working any longer, I decided that I would finish my master's in education here at Queen's. Uh, under Ted Christo, who's yes. a dear, dear mentor. Yes, and of course I, he's moved on. Yes, well, I started off with John Freeman, and he passed away mm-hmm. when I was early into my degree. And so I was one of those people at a time in our faculty who who got orphaned. I kept getting picked up by someone, right. but there was a lot of shift in movement. Right. And so in some ways it was beneficial because I learned from a lot of different yes. people. Yes, that's very true. But in the end, Ted was willing to take me on and help me finish through the pandemic. And so my research for my master's in education is on complex childhood trauma and learning. And I'm a neurodiverse thinker as well, which is another way to say I'm a wild thing. (laughs) (laughs) Not following a path, like a normal path. I decided I didn't want to write a thesis. I just, I can't sit still long enough. I find it difficult. I'm getting... I'm learning how to do it now in a PhD, all that to say, you know, people who come to higher education with imposter syndrome, you don't need to come here thinking you can do it all. You come here to learn how yes. to do it. Yes. And I I had that same anxiety entering, like, I can't do this. Like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do a PhD? That was last week. <laughs> I'm in my third year. And this week. <laughs> yeah. So for six days solid I followed a plan and a routine and I have a lot more confidence there you go you see it all works out in the end it does so what I want to talk about now because we could get straight into your research but there's still something else I want to want to bring to everyone's attention is that you are the founder of the Canadian Museum of Women's History what made you want to do this is this something from the Seneca Museum or thing on uh, social justice is that does it come from that or is it something else well let's start with this and what is it let's what is it the museum itself okay so let's start with this when people ask me what made you want to build a museum the first thing that comes to mind is the debate night that was on television between Trump and Hillary Clinton okay. do you remember this and the scene he's walking around behind, behind her, her yep and talking over her yep. and making gestures and faces behind her as she speaks and i thought to myself well look at that there's patriarchy showing itself full blown on my television misogyny at the highest levels yep. and he was never once called out no i know and i never understood why not by a mediator or moderator or yeah. I mean, she attempted to deflect some of his behavior, but why? I mean, it's the whole scenario. Why is the woman left to have to say, your behavior is not okay? It's inappropriate, yeah. So 
that's the first thing that comes to mind. And I think how many women watching that and how many men thought that behavior was acceptable? And how are we going to help people? I mean, that was, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to say 2014. 14 or 15. In that area. He came in in the 2016, didn't he? That yeah. would so be 15, probably even November, like it was laid mm-hmm. into those in those debates. If in that, like 2015, people still couldn't see that this was problematic, oh yeah, by the way, and then they elected him with this behavior, like blatant behavior, we obviously haven't done our job, whoever we is, we being society, the educators, the social justice warriors, and I love the term myself, to educate the public about how misogyny plays out and how it works and the effects it's having on women, children, and men. Right, right, right. So I thought, what we need here is a school, <laughs> a social justice so school. So you're calling it a school, not a museum? In my mind, it's a school. Right. It's a social justice school. When I was working on my master's one day, I was whining about having to write a paper, and I was, you know, Duncan Hall. Yes. And, and the education library overlooks P4W, which is the former yes. prison for women. And I was sucking whining about having to write this paper and I looked out the window and literally across the road I could see the barred windows where women would have been in prison and looking back across at the university at an educational facility at an opportunity right the difference between the opportunity those women had in their lives especially in their childhoods and what I'd had in mine and the majority of people who would have been attending uh, university Mm -hmm was stark stark the difference was it's measurable but it's stark and so education is the answer initially i thought well that building is sitting there empty that would be the perfect place for a a, a national women's museum uh, it's still empty there's lots of work happening yes. but it's not nothing is completely settled it's owned by a developer was sold from queens to a developer i believe it's a unesco site waiting to happen with the Canadian right. Museum of Women's History in it. So I kind of haven't given up on that idea oh, yet. that's awesome. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, well, you know what? We've got to keep working on those sorts of things. Because first of all, that building, you're right, it's been sitting there for a long time. It's been empty since I arrived. Um, that was, I was 2017. I think we still had all the walls up. I think it was after that that the walls came down, bar one. But it would, it would be a perfect spot. Wouldn't it? Absolutely perfect spot for it. And particularly being school or museum with the historical side behind it which is why it's always been an issue trying to develop it yes it makes perfect sense it does we have to run through some capitalist hoops yet to find out if that's going to be the case but (laughs) no doubt in my mind now there's two there's a there's a group of um like a board of directors that that are running the organization I've started and there's myself. And so with my board of directors hat on, we'll be happy to receive any space that's willing to host us. Heather's dream is that we go in that building, but nothing has just been decided. Well, don't give up, put it that way. Okay. So let's get on then to your research. So your research is about, or called, if I've got this correct, could a national museum dedicated to women's history as a vehicle for public pedagogy 
strengthen liberal democracy in Canada. So there's a small idea to try it and was do a in small one paper. <laughs> I know. You can't even read it all I, in one sentence. I know. I had to sort of break it up a little bit there to make sure I was reading things correctly. Tell me a little bit about that. What are you trying to accomplish? I was finishing my master's and I thought, this is it. This is my chance to apply for a PhD. So I said to Ted, I'd like to do a PhD. And so he, you know, did the pitch and he said, what do you want to do it on? And I gave him this topic and he he was like, do it, do it, do it. Because he's a museum guy, right? He loves museums. <laughs> he loves the Greeks. He loves, he loves learning. And if you read that sentence again, start with this the first little bit. Could a national museum dedicated to women's history as a vehicle for public pedagogy? We'll stop there. So let's talk about public pedagogy. Yeah. Public pedagogy. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about public in the public sphere. Yes. And I will talk about pedagogy. Well, I'll, let's do pedagogy quickly because it's a really, I'll say, easy definition compared to the other. But pedagogy is the art of teaching and, and how we disseminate information and encourage learning. Mm -hmm. That's pedagogy. So public sphere is very connected to democracy. In fact, you can't have a true democracy without a strong public sphere. And when I talk about public sphere, I talk about everything that happens outside of current institutions. Maybe some discussion happens inside institutions, yeah. but really it's the birth of policy. So whenever a vibrant public sphere emerges, people are emancipated from imposed authority. That's a big sentence to it chew. It is a big sentence. So it happens in this way. Ideas are presented. And maybe it's like, let's take the example of a community group that forms to direct or solve a particular problem in a neighborhood. Issues are debated, so everyone has a voice and is heard equally. Public opinion is then formed. Right. And from there, social action takes root. Right. So the action comes from the ideas and the debate. And it from that place, the public sphere goes on to influence public and therefore public policy is developed. Right. So this is where pedago public pedagogy can strengthen liberal democracy. That's right. So when we're talking about public in the public sphere, mm -hmm. and we're so that that's the public in the public sphere. Pedagogy is the art of teaching. So if we put those two ideas together, what the public is learning outside the current institutions of learning that are like big L learning. So that would be colleges, universities, public schools. Uh, when we talk about public pedagogy, lots of that is happening in libraries, yes, museums. museums. It's happening here between us right now on yes. the podcast. Public pedagogy happens in commercials. And performance. Art. The best example I can think of recent history of public pedagogy was the federal government's rollout of the COVID vaccines. Right. Why we need them, what they're going to do to help people, where you can go to get them. And there was lots of room left for debate, and people were not forced to t accept the vaccine. They were given a choice. That's all part of public pedagogy, right. being able to have a dissent in an opinion. So what would you put in this National Museum dedicated to women? So this, na this museum is a social justice school. The first things that we need to all understand, and there hasn't been a place to do this yet, is how did women 
moved from not being able to vote or even be considered persons in 1929, which was the person's case, right. to today when we have much higher levels of equality. Have we reached full equality? No, of course not. It's really evident. I don't, I don't think I need to sit here and give you a list of stats. No, you're right. Right? I mean, it's, it's 2023 now, we know. But part of continuing social change is teaching people how social change has evolved over time and basically what are the tools that work. And this sort of, a, of an institution will do that. So is it more, I mean, I know museums, historical museums talk about period pieces, this, this happened in this period, this happened in this period. But if you want it to be more not just people walking through and oh that's interesting that's interesting but to go away and and think more about what they've just seen how are you going to make that work i think we're not going to send them away we're going to try and build community around the space okay so not only will there be displays and opportunities to walk through and see artifacts there'll be opportunities to learn on site we will have public opportunities for lectures, for gatherings, for learning. For example, maybe the Indigenous women would be willing to come and offer a cooking class. Right. And that is public pedagogy, and that's women's history, and that's cultural diversification. So it's really getting the, the community that this particular place is going to be really involved. Yes. So it's not just museum curators. It's everyone getting involved that hopefully people from outside the community also want to come in. Absolutely. Be a part of. Absolutely. And where we can have a public sphere of conversations and debates and help move public policy further ahead. Uh, there is an international association of women's museums. Okay, there that was are... one of my questions here. I mean, are there others around the world? There are probably, let me see, on any given day, like 30 national museums. There are 75 forms of women's museums. Okay. They may be specific to a region or uh, a genre, like there's a cowgirls women's museum. Okay. I don't know if I'm even <laughs> saying it right. Some are particularly focused on art. Uh, some are focused on um political rights, right. which is really more, I'm hoping that this one will be many things. And when I say I, my goal is to build a frame and then invite a larger conversation in to say, right. what do we want to do with the space? Right. We have, we're going to have a little test run of this. I, I, I forgot to share this with well, you. Tell us about that. How are you going to test it? We're going to have a little test run. The City of Kingston in December, through their Heritage Fund, awarded us a small grant Excellent. to host a pop-up women's museum. Brilliant. Yeah, it's great. And where are you going to put that? We're going to put it in Memorial Hall. Fantastic. So I should be clear, too, that this museum is going to live in Kingston. Kingston, which, is, which is great. Kingston is going to be the home of Canada's National Women's Museum. I've had some great conversations with the city. Nobody's signed anything or promised away anything, but we've had conversations about locations, and the city is very keen to have this here. Primarily because uh, its tagline is, this is uh, the city of museums. There are 33 museums in Kingston. Oh, God, I didn't realize there was that many. There are. Well, that's, that's well, 34. <laughs> 
34, yes. So we're going there. We're going to have the pop-up museum is going to be at City Hall. We're going to have an October 19th. It's a Saturday. Right. Uh, free admission. Fantastic. Uh, the city is giving us the space. Uh, October 18th is Persons Day in Canada. That's the day that okay. women were declared persons legally. Right. It, October is also Women's History Month in Canada. Right. So it fits nicely. So who else do you are you going to get involved in this? Because you absolutely we, we need the city to get involved. We need you to get involved. What other groups are getting involved in this? We are going University to Canada uh, College and all those can all get involved. But the, is there those groups or the people from outside, like the women's shelters and other groups like that? We are going to, first of all, we have to measure the space because yes, we have true. to see how many we can hold. But if you think about it like an antiques roadshow, it's that kind of a concept. I love, and I love antiques roadshow. <laughs> I don't know if anyone wants to sell you anything, and I'm not buying anything, <laughs> yeah. but the tables will be set up basically nice. like a flea market. And we will be inviting, in March, as many organizations as we can think of in Kingston, and it'll be first come, first serve, right. to come and display the items and story of, their, of women within their organizations. Okay. So Queens so will get a letter, and it'll be encouraged to send, create a booth, and set up a table that talks about women at Queen's and the history thereof. Right. And then other groups could be, like some of the, the groups that Keys, for instance, or ISCA works with, some of the cultural groups. Sexual Assault Centre, I hope, Sexual. will be there. Yes. So well, that would be great. And then, the, of course, then there's the promotional side of it all. Hopefully, being in the city, the city will help with that. Well, we did already get a small grant from the city. I say small because I think I'm... I'm going to triple it <laughs> we'll be looking for sponsorship we'll be looking for in-kind donations from local merchants and some of the bigger grocery stores for food we we hope if we can do it is offer some space for local women artists to sell mm -hmm. their art or wares uh, an opportunity for women to make money and again it's free it's really important to mm -hmm. me that if uh, if we're going to have a public event that it belongs to everyone and everyone has the opportunity to attend so this is all fascinating how are you making that relating that back to your work your phd so when i said to because Ted, it's easy to go off and talk about this this and then you think well why do you need to do a phd if you already know what you want to produce so why how does that relate back to what you're doing in your phd okay so back to my research question which, which is, could a national museum dedicated to women's history as a vehicle for public ped pedagogy strengthen liberal democracy in Canada? So, when Are I, you using this as part of your data collection? This your conversation? The, well, this and the museum, are you using it as part of your collection? So when I asked Ted about, you know, am I a person that can do a PhD? And I posed the idea of, of researching women, the value of a women's museum. What I wanted from the university was that big gold check mark. I wanted to build this in a way, the Women's Museum, that I could answer some of those big hard questions like, why do we need a women's museum? Why do we still need museums? Because right. you hear that still. Why do we need museums? Why do we need libraries? Why do we need a women's museum? And in order to be confident in the answer. I wanted the time that doing a PhD would give me to reflect and the opportunity to read and write right. about that very question. 
And so I have, funny enough, next week I start my first comp. Woo. And I'm ready. Good. Well, it's taken me two and a half years. All I've done is read for the last two years and think. That happens, though. But I'm ready. In order to answer my own research question, I need to to contemplate the impact of the dominant white male culture on the absence of a public institution in Canada solely dedicated to preserving, explaining, educating women's contributions to the country's development. Moreover, I want to explore how women's struggle for social equality has bolstered the democratic core of Canada. And I would argue with myself and say, that it's the greatest weakness in our democratic core right now is that women have not reached full equality. In order to have a true democracy, all citizens have to be treated as equal, viewed as equal, and equally represented. And this has been a great achievement of Canada, but it's not fulfilled. Right. And so the research uh, is allowing me time to answer some big questions. When I actually sit down to do data collection, what I'll be doing is, first of all, surveying the 75 members of the International Association of Women's Museums around the questions that we've been talking about today. Right. How do you... Questions are not quite formulated, so, mm-hmm. so here's the questions as they stand to date, knowing I haven't defended my proposal yet. That's all right. So the first question I'm looking at is, how do executive directors of women's museums view the impact on liberal democracy in countries where they are present. Okay. Second question is, how do executive directors of women's histories museums view museums as vehicles of public pedagogy in the countries where they are present? And then based on the interviews, I'm going to do a case study of an existing women's museum and actually look a little deeper in to see where where the answers to those two questions are. So I'll be surveying first 75 Mm -hmm. members of the International Association of Women's Museums. And then the second part of my research will be to interview five uh, executive directors of museums. Uh, I'll set out a list of criteria as I get further in. I'm going to try and get countries that have similar GDP, legal structure, political structure, population as Canada, just so we can start to see here's the argument for for this museum. That's a big job. But you know what? If anyone can do it, you can. Well, that's very nice to hear. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) The fact you've gone straight ahead with, with the museum, I mean, just the thought process that you've put into this of what you're trying to accomplish, but also on the side looking at what else can I be doing during this time? Sort of help me with to, to help you with some of those answers, but also have a living legacy as well. Well, I'm I'm not somebody who really likes to read. I mean, I shouldn't say that. I like to read for pleasure. Right. But if I was to hand you my dissertation, would that change the world? You could read it and say that's a great idea, have a museum. Yeah. But you have to actually have a museum in order to, to change the world. Right. So. Building it is really the key. So I guess my last question before we finish, in terms of the museum, first of all, with your research, that's a big project, but like I said, I think you can do it. In terms of the museum, what you're trying to do with the museum, with the help of the city and everything, um, is there a website or something that people can see how you're developing this? Yes. uh, For them to have a look at and, you know, 
get their interest. I don't know if you got on there an opportunity for people to put their hand up for volunteering to do whatever. Certainly volunteering to help with the pop-up uh, yes. museum projects yes. that will be happening in the fall. Um, there is a website. And I developed it as part of my coursework with Amanda Cooper in her course, uh, Scholarly Writing. Fantastic. So, you know, she wanted us to do something that demonstrated that we could d disseminate what we were learning out into the public. And the website address, can I give it to yes, you? Yes, sure. www. Uh, the website address is www.cmwh.ca. Fantastic. And from there, you can find a link to email uh, myself and the other members of the board. And so, Heather, we're going to have to stop, I think. <laughs> we could keep going. I told you I could talk a lot. But we, we do need three to stop. minutes of talking is never going <laughs> to work. But I'm going to have you coming back anyway, because I'm sure you've got lots more to tell us how things are progressing a little bit later. And I'd love to learn more about how the pop-up goes. In, at the I would end love of the to come in and do a little recruiting so, when we have the pop-up. So. Not a problem. So let, let's do that. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story so far. Thank in, you in for having PhD. me. This is an absolute gift to have the time to talk. Brilliant, brilliant. So, as I say to everyone, that's it for another week of Grad Chat, which sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify and CFRC Podcast. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.